You love Alfred. He's all right. The other brother is a little insane and drowns mice in the dog water bowl. I did not did not know that. Okay. Yeah. I'm really glad we kept is Alfred. He... Okay. <laughs> Uh, Bruce might have been a little too much for us. <laughs> oh, goodness. Some fucking serial killer arts and craft time with micey face. Oh, my God. <laughs> Meanwhile, the dog is just like, I don't know what this cat's doing, but uh, sure, you can use my water bowl. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of My Favorite Feminist. My name is Megan, and I'm here with my co-host, Milana. Hey, guys. You're listening to the bi-weekly podcast that explores feminism and the arts and sciences. Today, we're going to learn about a Native American craftswoman and sculptor. And also, we're going to talk about a woman who boldly went where no African-American woman had gone before. To the 1920s voting booth? Hey. <laughs> I'm sorry. I do hope that you all voted on Tuesday. If you guys saw my Instagram, we should all have voted. And if not, you have plenty other chances. Primaries are coming up. Yep. We gotta we gotta move that asshole out of the White House. Anytime now. My state, Virginia, we went blue. Like completely blue. That was very exciting. Such a pretty color. In a traditionally Republican state, so not this year. We are fed nope. up. Yeah. <laughs> if Virginia's like, no, nah, really, man, this is too much, then uh, that says something. Just throwing that out there. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see what type of post-apocalyptic potential hell we're in come next year's election. Just a nightmare that never ends. Yeah. But today, I don't know about your end, Milena, but um, I've got some fun old-fashioned American racism to talk about. Just in time for our Thanksgiving episode. <laughs> You know what? I'm not going to lie. That's exactly why I'm doing this. All right. That's fair. Yeah. No, I just picked mine because her birthday was in October and I missed it. And also, she and I have some, like, she's my my woman crush right now, my inspiration, my role model in this time of my life, and I will explain that when I tell you about her. Oh, that's cool. First, you got to deal with me. Yay! Yeah. So, like I said, I purposely did this because of November. And for those of us here in the United States, we have this time-honored tradition to look forward to later this month. And let's be honest, it's Black Friday. (laughs) We're we're greedy, capitalistic (laughs) bastards. We really are. So we, here in America, we've got our tradition of Thanksgiving and Black Friday. Ugh. But with that tied up is the very questionable portrayal of Native Americans in our national story. So I thought right now would be a great time to kind of look into some Native American artists. So today we're covering one of America's most well-known basket weavers, Washoe Indian Dabuda, also known as Louisa Kreiser, also known as Datsola Lee. I'm sorry, what? Yeah, so she has a lot of names, and I'm going to go with her Christian name, Louisa, and I'll get into the reasons why a little later. Aside from you not being able to say the other names? Okay. All right. Well, we've got her Indian name, and we also have another <laughs> given name. I can say them. Thank you very much. <laughs> 
Continue. <laughs> Take a little bit of offense. Louisa was born to Buddha in the Washoe Indian tribe in Nevada. They're centered around Lake Tahoe outside of Carson City, kind of like right along the Nevada, California state lines. And this is roughly in the 1840s. Mm. Yeah, so this roughly stuff ties in with her name stuff, too. There's a boatload of baggage with this story. Now, her tribe, along with all the other tribes in North America, I've only been here for like hundreds and hundreds of years. And specific to them, they live nomadically, you know, kind of living off all the lakes and the forest around Lake Tahoe. And the, the early years on Louisa, fairly spotty. Like, we know at some point she married a fellow tribe member. They had two kids, but unfortunately, the kids didn't survive childhood, and her husband either died from exposure or consumption. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, as as we know, consumption, a.k.a. tuberculosis. It's been a while since we've seen good old tuberculosis. (laughs) Yeah, we had a good stretch where I feel like every episode, someone involved in the stories were contracted or died of tuberculosis. Um. Yes. So going back to Louisa, her whole family's dead and it's it really sucks. And this is roughly when she's in her 20s. Timeline is a little murky. Um, So things are shitty for her and things are also shitty for her tribe. And I mean, at this point in history in America for Native Americans as a whole, like since the initial colonization of America, like there's always been this quote Indian problem. Like, how does a white man make the people who have been on the land for thousands of years like get the fuck out so they can have it and the natural resources and then we like even a little bit before louise was born 1930 president andrew jackson issued the indian removal act and that like forced native americans out of the south which resulted in the trail of tears you know or we had thousands of people die just on their way west to reservations so like at america we've got a pretty messed yeah. up history when it comes to race and, and i relations. think it's it's um, it's not just a history it's happening now oh it so is okay so you know how the trail of tears involve like native americans getting sick and getting kicked out of their homes and like thousands of people dying like that happens now but in the cities specifically with gentrification because you're taking that. Oh, and just like yeah. a lack of resources. And it, it, yeah, we just. We've just built like a whole buttload of homeless people because, hey, we wanted this. This is a good property. So get the fuck out. People don't see it. They think it doesn't exist. It definitely does. Oh, it's. Yeah. Yeah. We we got a lot of things in this country that's not going too stellar. So with Louise's tribe being far west, they weren't dealing with that direct governmental intervening in their lives, mm. but they were still feeling the repercussions of it. Mm. So we've got gold discovered in California and then eventually like silver in Nevada, and that forced out a whole influx of people coming through Nevada and their territory that completely like disrupted what they had going on for like centuries. So Like, suddenly the way they've been living their way of life is completely thrown off. Um, They're competing for resources, like their fish and game, until her tribe, they had to kind of concede to colonization for what was going on. Mm. Yeah, their way of life was just completely unsustainable because the lakes they were fishing in, the fish were being depleted, the forests that they were, you know, foraging in... The trees were being cut down for mining, so they completely had to switch gears with how they were living their lives. And unfortunately, that was that was like a common theme, you know, during this this period. And that's how Louisa came to work as a cleaner for the miners in the area. And this is about 1850s, 1860s, end of the Civil War in 1965, and we've got like the full-on Wild West 
here in America. Oh, God. Yeah. So it was weird. So we've got the Victorian age going on, right? Really stuffy. Everyone's, you know, super repressed. But we've got this intense post-slavery period. And then fucking gold miners and the Wild West out in California where it's not even really officially a state just yet. And like no laws. None. Yeah, it's, it's a very weird period depending on what part of the country you're in from East Coast to West. And like I said, like the American expansion West disrupted, you know, more and more tribes and it totally threatened, you know, cultural identity of all these tribes. And like the U.S. government was actively looking for total assimilation of these people that they saw as a threat. You know, boarding schools were set up that purposely took young kids away from their families to like teach them the Western way, completely isolate them from their people, their way of life, their culture, and assimilate them into, you know, American Western ideals. And it was weird because, like, they're teaching them the, quote, like, American way, but at the same time, Native Americans weren't legally considered U.S. citizens until 1924. And we're still talking about the 1850s at this point. So, like, no rights for anyone. No. People could do whatever they wanted. I I mean, welcome to American government. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Like, legit. They wanted to have their cake and eat it, too. Like, force Native Americans off valuable land, colonize them as Westerners, and yet deny them of any, like, legal or ethical or even social obligations from that forced assimilation. Mm. Yeah. Pretty messed up racial, racial history. You know. <laughs> Happy Thanksgiving. Yeah. And this is just a tiny little piece of it, too. Like I said, for Louisiana tribe, their traditional way of life was completely over. And Louisa, like a lot of other Native Americans at the time, are she's living in poverty. She's working for the white newcomers, you know, caring for their children, doing their cleaning, you know, doing their laundry. Louisa's doing whatever she can to put a roof over her head and food on the table. And I mean, unfortunately, this was pretty typical. Roughly into the late 1880s, Louisa's about 40-ish at this point. She does meet and marry a Charlie Keezer who's 20 years younger. Yeah, she's getting it. He was he was a half Washoe Indian. He was a master aerocraftsman. Um, and it's at this point she changes from her native name to a Christian name of Louisa. Like together, they're just trying to scrape by. And then in 1890, everything changes for them when this white couple realizes that they can make a shit ton of money off of Louisa. No. This isn't exactly a Disney story. No. Now, so like other Washoe girls... Louisa was taught basket making. That was pretty common, especially as Ed, from a young age. Within like nomadic tribes, basket making is really important. You know, unlike people maybe a little bit more in the Southwest where ceramics was more prominent, you know, you can't carry around all these big heavy ceramic pots and jars and containers. So baskets, they were lightweight. You could carry just about anything and could even be used for cooking, which I thought was pretty interesting. Yeah, you'd like heat up stones and then put like water because these are water type baskets. Oh, cool. Uh, yeah, like, I mean, I think that's technically amazing and so you know you'd put in like your your pine seeds and your other like veggies and stuff and water and you'd heat up stones and you put the stones in the basket and that would heat up everything oh cool and you just you would swap out hot stones to keep things going until it was you know cooked oh oh that's so cool because when i heard that i was like how the hell are you using woven like baskets to cook food i was like i don't how does that work so that that was the system that's pretty ingenious yeah so pragmatically really important but also used you know in like spiritual ceremonies and also for a lot of you know just kind of sharing customs and louisa like she she held on to that and when she wasn't working she was making baskets and for a lot of other women who learned you know the traditional way basket weaving it dropped off 
because you've got all these Westerners coming over with their cast iron pots and pans. And I mean, those things will last for ages. Like basket making is very labor intensive. Like why would you even spend the time if you could just use, you know, like I can just go to the general store and get a cast iron pot. Art. Yeah. Louisa, she held on to it. And so this is what she's doing in her, you know, what spare time she has. At a certain point, she and her baskets caught the attention of a couple that owned a large clothing general store in Carson City, Abe and Amy Cohn, who ran the Emporium. And this is where things kind of shift for Louisa. While, like, personally being a Native American in the late 1800s was pretty shitty, there was a very large market for Native American crafts at this time. What? Yes. Okay. Art, a little bit of art history story time. Um, so because of the Western expansion, you know, these items are seen as novelty because they're from like this wild West, right? Uh-huh. Um, we've, we've also got the arts and craft movement going on. Started in England and essentially it was just backlash against mass industrialization. So people, they wanted well-made handcrafted items again from pottery to furniture and this included, you know, baskets. And then... From like a fine art point, we've got primitism that we've talked about a little Mm -hmm. bit. That was trendy. And essentially, that's just Western artists being inspired from non-white art. So like African, South Pacific, and also like Native American work was being kind of essentially like fetishized in fine art circles. Yeah, we touched on that a little bit in another episode. Oh my god. I can just hear like the the conversations between people looking at the artwork and just like cringing. Just kind of like a condescending tone and like... Oh, this is great for, like, good for them. I mean, that that was essentially the sentiment of it. And it made these objects, like, fashionable to have between this combination of, like, the primitism and then the arts and craft movement and then, you know, American, like, exploring West. It was, like, new and novel and exciting and be like, oh, it's so different. But, like, at the same time, the people buying it were still superior kind of at the end of the day. Mm. Yeah. So this all kind of intersected. And... That Abe Cohn, who was introduced to Louisa, he realized there was money to be made. Of course there was. <sighs> there always is. I mean, again, we're capitalist greedy bastards here in this country. So she is approximately 50 when she meets Abe and Amy Cohn. So in the spring, when the grasses and roots are still tender, they, you know, people go out and collect them. So things like willow and redbud and bracken fern, you know, that was used for their, you know, their natural colors to build up pattern. After they'd be collected in the spring, they'd have to be split and trimmed to uniform size. And at some point, well, at sometimes we're talking like thinnesses that are, you know, thinner than a quarter of an inch of taking these like natural things and uniformly splitting them. Which, I mean, that right there, that takes so much skill. And then after all the prep work, usually it was during the winter after the harvest season when the actual weaving would be done. Okay. And some of the materials had to be, like, aged a little bit. So, I mean, right away, you've got, like, potentially a six-month lead time before you can actually do your weaving. So, there's, I mean, a lot of technical prep. Yeah, like, that's just a lot of time just to do. That's... I don't know, like, you're not, like, really, like, cranking out a lot of finished products too quickly. No, and that comes into this a little later. And, I mean, I'm going to gloss over the technical how-to of weaving because there's lots of very particular techniques to it. But in the more traditional way, they're sturdy. I mean, that's how you make these things watertight to be able to cook in. But at the same time, like, it's not a quick process. Yeah. You have to have a lot of skill and be able to have that kind of technical. Yeah, 
accomplishment. And so when this interest in native art was really kicking off and people saw there was to be, you know, money made off of it, um, a lot of basket makers sacrificed the quality of what they were doing to increase their productivity. Right. And unfortunately for the casual person buying these items as a novelty, it, it wasn't terribly uh, like a discerning market. Yeah. And honestly, they wouldn't have known the difference. There were a few collectors that really recognized the value in these higher end items because um, Louisa did have quite a few contemporaries at the time because she was just making primarily for herself and she kept the traditional ways and it was the high skilled way. That's what Abe and Amy saw and that's what made them realize you're not your usual weaver you know kind of pandering to the masses like Mm -hmm. there's money to be made and they they were already selling Native American baskets at their store and it's a little unclear if Louisa was working for them as a cleaner Uh, but you know one way or another they saw her her weaving and the her her legit like superior skill set in it. So with her quite high quality stuff, they realize they can attach a pretty penny price to it, um, and that's exactly what they did. So I mean, either way, Louisa approaches them. They agree to sell her work, but in return, Louisa does have stipulations. So she'll work full time for them making her baskets, but in return, they do have to provide for her and her husband a house, food, clothing, and medical care. I mean, that's all I want. Like that's it. Like. She just wants, like, a root of, a roof over their head and food on the table and being able to see a doctor. Um, and, I mean, to be fair, the Cones did provide that for the rest of their lives. Mm-hmm. But, like, that's already such a, like, a hard state she was in where she just wanted the basics to be covered. Yeah. And that was enough. That's really sad. Yeah. So, yeah. And, like I said, like, the, the Cones, they did provide that for the rest of their lives. And Louisa is so well known as one of the best basket weavers of her time. Because of the business savvy of the cones, which is not always agreeable, especially by today's standards. Yeah. So the cones, they marketed the fuck out of Louise's work. And that started by renaming her Datsolali. Oh. They crafted a persona around her of essentially what they thought white Americans wanted to see in a Native American. Oh, no. No, no, yeah. no. And even, so Louisa is... If you search for her, she everything comes up under Datsolali. Mm. Um, but to me, why they renamed her and what they were doing with it, a little racist. So that's why I'm not no. her given name. No. Yeah, I'm going with the name that she chose. And like fitting in with the overall stereotype of not only Native Americans but women of this time, like Abe publicly regarded Louisa as slow, dim-witted, and childish and vain. Mm-hmm. So like completely open. Yeah, and uh, publicly would like just demean her his wife wasn't too much better so she was really responsible amy for creating this narrative that like louisa was an indian princess and that others were forbidden from copying her work oh. and that her designs had like secret sacred sacred religious meaning oh my god they were really amping this shit up and what's worse is people were eating this shit up. oh no 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 yeah. no no <laughs> Like, in one of the brochures that Amy put together, like, she was remarking how Louisa spent hours using nothing but her fingernails and teeth splitting the willow that she used for her weaving. Oh, my God. Yeah. And she, like, even furthered this persona by, like, she would title the baskets ridiculous things, like, with aid of medicine man's magic, arrow points of game was slain. Mm. Or things like, all are dead or dying. So she was... Amy was really playing up to what they thought people were expecting of Native American artists. Right. 
and just Native Americans in general. And like while the cones were crafting this like ridiculous fictitious narrative around Louisa, her baskets were selling great because of it. The, the Coens, they really mastered the idea of that, like, buying a basket from the maker was may- way more valuable than, like, a generic one. Um, and at one point in 1905, they started a rumor that she was going blind in order to increase sales. Oh, my God. Yeah. Like I said, their practices very problematic. But, like, they were also very systematic in their business approach. Every one of Louise's baskets was inventory and recorded in size and material in her stitch count and style. And, like, in building that persona of Datsola Lee, they attracted very well-paying collectors, you know, to Indian craft. So in about 1914, like, the going price for a handmade native basket, like, adjusted for inflation, was about, like, $125 to $250. Like, isn't bad. That's not bad at all. A collector spent over $50,000 on a single single basket of Um, what? Yeah, this is 1914. Okay, how much of that did she actually see? She's not she's not getting a cut of it. Yeah. Like at all. Yeah. That's Instead, crazy. like the Coens are making sure that she's her and her husband have clothes. They yeah. did build her a small house yeah. next to their own. But like I couldn't find any numbers on what Louisa was getting from it, which probably wasn't anything. And I, I'm not sure what they were making off of it, aside from it was a profit. Oh my god. Yeah, so the baskets that they're selling that they're making money off of for Louisa, like she started pulling from like traditional washo motifs. So these baskets, like they range in size. Sometimes they're fairly small, only a few inches to about 14 inches tall. Um, and for the larger pieces, with how labor intensive they are, it did take over a year just to complete one. So the money people are paying for it, I mean, I think is appropriate from a technical standpoint. Absolutely. The amount of hours yeah, that go labor. into it. Yeah. I mean, they're consistently, like, they've got fine stitching. And this is a woman who, at this point, is in her 50s and 60s. So it's much harder for her. Yeah. I mean, think of all that. Like, you have a life, you know, where you're doing essentially hard labor, you know, rough on your hands, on your eyesight. And these are baskets with up to, like, 30 stitches per inch. Oh, my God. Yeah. So in some case, you have thousands and thousands of stitching that goes into one piece. Mm-hmm. And they're they're really beautiful forms. Um, this is another marketing ploy of Amy. So at first, Louisa was doing like traditional basket forms, and then she kind of started getting creative a little bit. Like one of the benefits of working with the Coens and their general store is she got to be exposed to other styles of Native American baskets mm-hmm. outside her own tribe. Um, and so she started playing with you know forms and colors a bit, and she um, be- is most well known for her her. Daggy coops baskets, which is a term that Amy coined, and they're really wonderful. Essentially, they have a small base, and they they taper out a bit, and then at the very top they come in again. So the opening is pretty much the same size as the small base. Oh, and when Louisa started doing this, that was a complete departure from practical forms, mm-hmm. really into art and sculpture. She was doing it to showcase her technical skills and what the materials could do and just to make an absolutely beautiful object. Right. And this style that she she kind of developed, um, that became the most copied Native American basket form at the time and the best-selling one. Oh, really? That's cool. Yeah. So it's weird because she's got this technical, you know, amazing creative, you know, abilities to craft these things. And for some of the geometric patterns she's doing in it, she's not sketching these out. I mean, she's essentially like a 3D printer doing layer by layer. Right. 
And then you've got the marketing skills of the cones to, you know, be able to push these things and command high prices for them. But at the same time, they're completely taking advantage over her for their own financial benefit. And I mean, the cones, Louise is older than them. Um, a part of her persona is they lied about her age to make her seem older than she was. Oh, no. Yeah. Um, how old did they tell uh, – how old did the princess live? How long? Well, it was 1925 she passed away. Most likely she was in her 80s. They pushed her birth forward by almost up to 20 years. So that way it would fit with her meeting one of the first white Western explorers to come and meet her tribe. Oh. Most likely not the case. But the numbers are all over because they're like, well, she was probably in her late 90s when she passed away. Right. But it's. It's so hard and so murky because they lied about so many things about her that would be beneficial to their business. Yeah, that like knowing the real Louisa is harder. Yeah, and like I like I said, the her the records from like her first twenty years or so are they're really spotty. So we don't know. So her last like, you know, thirty years of life, I mean that's her consider a classical period of weaving. Which again, I mean most people start slowing down when they're they're in their sixties and seventies. But right. Louisa was going really strong. And like at one point she even traveled with Abe and Amy uh, to St. Louis for a really big arts and craft expo at the time. And again, this is all just to showcase her and to show her off. And, you know, they would make her do public weaving demonstrations in their shop. And it, I mean, it was all at the expense of her so they could make money off of it. Right. Which is pretty shitty. But at the same time, inadvertently helped preserve that traditional craft. So, yeah. So after she passed away, I mean, Abe and Amy were still making money off of her. And they had even lined up another Washoe basket weaver to take her place so they could keep making money. But one really important thing that Louisa was able to do is help preserve a a traditional craft. And she really transformed it into a fine art. And even though Abe and Amy were taking advantage of her, they did inadvertently help preserve, like, a skill set that had been passed on for thousands of years. And today, you can see her work in the Nevada State Museum, at the Yale University Museum, and even at the Smithsonian, too. Oh. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Like, her work is in big collections. And again, part of it is because her, quote, patrons were able to collect or attract these really fine art, native art collectors Mm -hmm. that did help facilitate getting these pieces in permanent collections like the Smithsonian. And like recently, like her work has sold for hundreds of thousands of dollars on the art market. So the story is a bit bitter. Like Louisa, she made a modern impact like with her art. And, you know, kind of was able to continue a really traditional style of weaving. And with the money she did have coming in, she was able to help out other family members. Oh, oh, nice. She was able to do something, yeah. Yeah, poverty was very prevalent. I mean, it still is in a lot of Native American reservations. But, I mean, at the end of the day, her work was exploited by those who benefited the most in keeping her disadvantaged. So, yeah, happy Thanksgiving. I thought (laughs) that's only one instance within our great American narrative. Oh, no. Uh, I mean, honestly, like, I really couldn't name any Native American artist. So I thought, you know, kind of... No time like now to start doing research and looking into things. And, you know, that is Louisa. Yeah. Also known as Datsolali. That's so sad, though. It's, yeah, it's tough because she was encouraged to do her art and to not sacrifice the quality of what she was doing and how Mm -hmm. she was doing it. Yeah. 
It's just, it's, it makes me wonder, like, if she, I mean, I'm sure she was smart enough to know that, like, she wasn't getting what, she, what the others are getting paid, but, like, the deal that she cut with them, I'm sure she was also like, well, this is a very rare opportunity that not a lot of people get, so I'm going to take advantage of it, which is just so sad. That was exactly it. Yeah. So, yeah, some good old-fashioned American racism. Well, we're going to fast forward and... Have not as bad old-fashioned racism, but uh, still there. I better say, I feel like it's like really, it's still peppered in a it's little still, bit. It's always still there. Yeah. She got a little more than a house over her head and food on her table, though. So. so let's see. So we're jumping in from the late 1800s, like 1890s or so, to ni- 1990s, 1980s? She was born in 1956. Okay, so... About roughly 100 years after Louisa then. Yes. So I'm really excited about this one, Megan. Like, really excited. Yeah. Her name is May Carol Jameson. She's known primarily for being an astronaut. Which is a super badass thing to be known for. I know. And I'm talking – I'm not just talking an astronaut. I'm talking the first African-American woman in space kind of astronaut. Awesome. Okay. I know. I was so excited. It's banging, obviously. Like, holy crap. But I think this might be speculation, but I think Mae Jameson would also like me to point out the other endeavors in her life because, from what I understand, she didn't just think of herself as an astronaut. She did so many other amazing things in her life. She wore so many hats. It was, ah, I love learning about her. I'm so excited, and I hope that you love learning about her too. So. If I'm being 100% transparent, she is currently my life's role model because I just gave my two weeks as resignation of a veterinary nurse to move on to something that would make me happy. And what I'm moving on to, I don't know. I don't have a backup plan. But I'm going to quote Our Lady, Mae Jameson. Mm -hmm. It says, Don't let anyone rob you of your imagination, your creativity, or your curiosity. It's your place in the world. It's your life. Go on and do all you can with it and make it the life you want to live. So. I like it. Yeah. No, she's very, she's, ah, I love her so much. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That's exactly what she did and is honestly still doing. She was born October 17th, 1956 to Charlie and Dorothy Jameson in, I can't say this, Decatur, Alabama. Dad worked for a charity organization as a maintenance supervisor, and Mom was a school teacher. She worked at an an elementary school. So when she was three, Jameson's family moved to Chicago, and it was there that she would spend time with her uncle, and he would introduce her to the wonderful world of science. So archaeology, anthropology, astronomy. Her biggest passion was space. One of her favorite TV shows growing up was Star Trek, the original series. Mm Mm-hmm. She also grew up watching the Apollo airings on TV. She noticed that there was a significant lack of women astronauts, um, a significant lack of African-American astronauts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, of course, going through, like, this whitewashed world of, like, Jackie Kennedy, that sort of thing, Star Trek gave her a person to look up to. So that was Lieutenant Uhura, played by African-American mm-hmm. actress Nichelle Nichols. She felt a connection with her. So, quick shout out to the power of equal representation in media and also to Nichelle Nichols, who was able to just be like, heck it, 
I'm going to be an African-American woman astronaut on TV. Like, she stepped up and did something that most women couldn't do, didn't have the chance to do, and she took it. And she inspired this wonderful human that I'm talking about right now. So, Yeah, yeah. Or more so that in the face of everything going against what she wanted, she didn't give up. Exactly. Yeah. Because that's, yeah, that's something that we've covered before. Mm-hmm. Is that systematically there's so many challenges in place that it's it's really commendable for the people who pushed past it and dealt with it, but it that didn't stop them from either their creative or scientific pursuits. Right, right. And these two women were like both, yeah, in both ways, they found their way to like move forward and do some amazing mm-hmm. things. Um, so maybe we can talk about Nichelle Nichols at some point and go through her life. But today it's about me, Jameson. Mm-hmm. So in 1973, Jameson graduated Morgan Park High School at the age of 16. Oh, wow. Yeah. She immediately left Chicago to attend Stanford University. And she was like one of the only African-American students in her class. So obviously she dealt with, mm-hmm. uh, you know, racism. But she did not let that get to her. In fact, she just powered through and did her own thing. So something she would do while at Stanford, so no big deal. She was the president of the Black Student Union. She choreographed a performing arts production titled Out of the Shadows. And that one was like about the African-American experience um, just growing up in the United States. And then graduated Mm -hmm. with a bachelor's degree in chemical engineering and also a bachelor of arts degree in african-american studies in 1977 oh nice yeah so we're gonna take a pause and address something so i know when we all like went through that list there was like a little record scratch going off in our heads because one of those things was not really like the others may jameson is also a dancer and she started at the age of nine when she entered high school at the age of 12 she was on the cheerleading team in the modern dance club so throughout her life she would learn ballet jazz modern dance and as well african and japanese inspired styles that's that's so cool because as we learned when you took me to salsa night i'm a terrible dancer um (laughs) so i'm envious of people who have that type of like physical coordination to be able to you know just smoothly communicate like with their bodies it's not a skill set that i have at all i love dancing it's so much fun and it it sounds like she's also someone that i i could have potentially covered from that you know kind of creative pursuit of hers oh absolutely yeah she was and this is another reason she's one of my like favorites that i've covered and i'll get i'll get to that in a little bit um she never stops dancing because even after she graduated with two undergrad degrees and jets off to Cornell Medical School. Nice. Mm-hmm, she still enrolls in classes at the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater. And she still found time to lead a medical study in Cuba for the American Medical Association. And also found time to work at Cambodian refugee camp during her summers all mm-hmm. throughout medical school. So she's she's not sitting still. And that's just, ah, I understand completely. <laughs> So she became a doctor in 1981 and jumped to an internship at the Los Angeles County Medical Center as a general practitioner. And I'm pretty sure she got bored because two years later, she joined the Peace Corps in Africa. Way to mix it up. I like it. Yes. So there she served in Liberia and Sierra Leone. Um, She's helping to run the pharmacy, lab staff, medical staff. She also provided medical care, helped implement guidelines for better medical standards of care. Uh, And then, no big deal, she also partnered with the CDC to help research the development of certain vaccines. Okay. Yeah. When she got 
back from Africa, she opened a private practice that she ran for a few years before she started to feel the itch to do something different again. And this is around the time there were there's breaking news in 1983. Another woman named Sally Ride became the first woman in space, and I'm going to eventually do her. Mm-hmm. So seeing Sally Ride go into space re-sparked Jameson's interest in space, and she applied to be part of NASA's astronaut program in 1965. But the program was currently not taking any more applicants, so there was a like a mission, the Challenger mission, that exploded in 1986, and there was a lot of collateral damage, a lot of like there was death. So they were trying to like shut down and re-up it and kind of figure out what yeah. their next steps yeah. were. They opened up acceptances again in 1987. She immediately applied one of the 15 people out of 2,000 applicants to be accepted into the program. Mm-hmm. And she worked at the Kennedy Space Center for like a few years until she received her first mission in 1989. Okay, so do you know like what it takes to become an astronaut like if you're looking to apply like what qualifications do you need to have well i know a lot of them tend to be like doctors or like have phds and stuff so they have to be like yeah obviously intelligent i mean you also need the physical capabilities she was a dancer she'd been a dancer since she was eight years old yeah that seems like that would that would mm-hmm. complement really well for yeah. you know, the duress you're going to be putting your body under. Mm-hmm. You have to be able to take it. Yeah, she was definitely like both intelligence and physical wise, like physicality wise, like she fit the bill perfectly, really. Mm-hmm. Okay, she's starting to get like, like people are starting to notice her. So 1987, you know, Associated Press covered her because she got into the NASA program. And they're like, oh, my gosh, she's the first black woman astronaut. And then mm-hmm. um, there was a most eligible singles on best catches uh, in oh, 1989. Goodness. Yeah. I mean, like she was starting to get like, like people are starting to notice her. The woman speaks three languages fluently aside from English. She speaks Russian, Japanese, and Swahili. Fun fact. Okay, like on top of her medical work and her dancing. Okay. Right? Like I would I I I would marry her. Just throwing that out <laughs> there. Just throwing that out there. So on September 28th, 1989, she was one of seven astronauts to go up on the space shuttle Endeavor. And it was a cooperative mission with Japan, which is where her learning Japanese comes in Mm -hmm. um she took some stuff up with her she took a poster with from her dance theater new york african statuette from her time in like sierra leone um and then a picture of bessie coleman so she was the first african-american with an international pilot license and she would start her shifts because there were two shifts um and they have like, so her shift, I guess, was the second shift or something like that. But when she would start, she would open her frequencies with the communication centers on Earth. And she would open saying, hailing frequencies open, which is actually a line from Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> I bet that first time she's like, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. Doing it. I'm doing it. <laughs> I've been waiting my entire life to say this. <laughs> she's so, it's pretty great. There she actually like produced saline solution in space. And I'm talking like IV saline solution. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if anyone knows anything about medical. That's, you know, you give her an IV. You know, go straight. It's just basically liquid that goes straight into the bloodstream to make sure that you have enough liquid in your bodies to like make the red blood cells go where they need to go. Yada, yada. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to get into yeah, it. Yeah, so you're hydrated. Yeah. Because if you're not hydrated, you die. 
which is just, I could go into like what the cells look like if you're dehydrated and like what that means. And like sometimes if you're too hydrated, your cells burst and it's so and you cool. you can also die. And you can also die. Okay, I'm done now. Uh, We're very <laughs> fragile creatures as we, humans. We, yeah, yeah, we are. So she did that. And then she did like some bone cell research and... She also induced frog ovulation and recorded how the tadpoles developed in zero gravity. I mean, okay, why not? Yeah, okay, so here's the thing. And I actually wrote, here's the thing. I said, here's the thing, like, impulsively, but it's actually written down here, so I love myself. Mm -hmm. We look at artists and their work and barely, like, blink an eye at their orgy art films or, like, drug-induced artathons because we expect the unexpected from artists. They're supposed to throw up creativity on, like, everything that they do. And we look at these artists and the time periods they lived in and the mediums that they use, and we say, yes, this artist helped develop this technique or made way for the transition from one art period to the other or even called out the bullshit societal norms that were faced upon them, like, at the time. Like, it all builds on what happened before them or what they were living through mm-hmm. then, right? So that is exactly what science is. I could give you possible reasons why Jameson was inducing frog birth in zero gravity or like go out of her way to develop sterile injectable water. Honestly, I, I imagine it has something to do with like zero gravity affecting embryonic and child development for like later missions or even if we can create sterile fields for medical purposes in space or procedures in space. Like, I don't know. Who knows? I mean, she knew, but that's not the point. The point is that Jameson will tell you that, and this is an actual quote from her, sciences provide an understanding of a universal experience. Arts are a universal understanding of a personal experience. They are both a part of us and a manifestation of the same thing. The arts and sciences are avatars of human creativity. No, that's that's a great way for her to describe it. And I mean, that's why we're doing it, because it's that curiosity and that creativity, be it in a studio or a lab of like what happens with fill in the blank. Exactly. Be it a paintbrush or a pipette. I couldn't say it better myself. And I've been saying it for years. Separating science from art or looking at the two entities as separate rather than intertwining or thinking one is better than the other, it's not conducive to a society that evolves and changes for the better. Stifling either the universal experience or the personal experience can stifle human development as a whole. And she knew that and she fucking ran with it. It's just mind-blowing. And the funny thing is, is that After her return, she resigned. She was like, I did the thing. I'm going on to something else now. She. (laughs) I'm done. I'm I'm done. (laughs) She, yeah. She just was like, okay, I'm going to start my own company now. So that's actually what she did. She, I mean, she was also like on the board of directors, the World Sickle Cell Foundation. Uh, But she founded the Jemison Group, Inc. And like incorporated. It was developed to kind of figure out how society affected technological advancement. Like what we could do better as a society to progress our children to learn more and to grow more and to have like that kind of like those resources that some places in the United States didn't have. Okay. So essentially like a think tank. Yes. Yeah. 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 Okay. And she even helped like bring those out to like internationally as well to South Africa, Tunisia, Switzerland. Like it wasn't just here. It was like she globally wanted an impact for the sciences and the advancement of our of our culture. Um, she yeah. also founded the Dorothy Jameson Foundation for Excellence. It was named after her mother. Oh. I know. It's more education focused. 
So, like, they'll, like, do science camps for students between, like, 12 and 16. Mm -hmm. And so those have been held at different colleges around the United States. So that's cool, too. Uh, She was obviously professor because they're all professors. (laughs) (laughs) So she's still going. She's still basically her main focus. She used her stance as an astronaut as a platform to work on things that upset her in our society. So specifically, the lack of education and the lack of resources for individuals who are in certain parts of the country or certain parts of the world who can't get their hands on these things and just how she could help facilitate movement forward. And she's still alive. I don't know where she's actually living right now. Okay. So at this point, she is in her 70s? She's 63. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Oh, some other things that I loved. She did. She has been on TV a few times. Mm-hmm. One of which was a 1993 episode of Star Trek The Next Generation called Second Chances. Oh, that's so exciting. I oh, my goodness. Know. I feel like I'd be such a dork. I'd be more excited about going on the TV show that I loved as a kid than actually going in space. I know. Oh, I'm sure she was. She was. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> She was actually the first real-life astronaut to appear on Star Trek. So that's cool, too. There you go. I like yeah. it. <laughs> I know, of course, it was LeVar Burton who was like, oh, wait, she actually wants to meet. We can make this happen. <laughs> it's got to be one of those wonderful moments where you're like, yes, everything is coming together now. <laughs> you're like, what do you think your qualifications are for being on the show? I'd be like, mm, I've been in space. <laughs> Well, that puts you ahead of the queue by just about um, everyone. (laughs) Everyone. (laughs) Oh, my God. And then, of course, she was. I think I mentioned this before. There was a uh, Lego release, the Woman of NASA set with uh, Margaret Hamilton. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she was part of that. Um, So now I have to do the other two. So Sally Ride, I mentioned earlier, and Nancy Grace Roman. And, of course, she was a Google Doodle because why wouldn't she be a Google Doodle? Um, but there's like there are so many other things like books she's published that I can I can write down for you the show notes things like that. Yeah. But yes, she is my queen. She's the energy I am going to be exuding from me as I walk through this jobless state. <laughs> um, she's gonna help me. I mean, <laughs> yeah, some ride sharing money coming in. But yeah, 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 yeah. this like career transition state yeah onwards and upwards it's and i'll probably be doing um i think i know who the next one will be i think after that we're gonna be taking a holiday break yeah so we're gonna take a little winter break but we will be back in the new year it'll be exciting it'll be our first anniversary oh my god (laughs) (laughs) that's true our our little baby our little baby's gonna be one so cute. I'm excited. Uh, but yeah, we need we needed to take a, a little break from it and then just recoup and re-up our our whole podcast and hopefully we'll uh we'll bring you more amazing women in the new year. Yeah, season two, baby. Season two. <laughs> yeah. Uh yeah, so I that's all I've got. It was really neat hearing about May Jameson like giving back and using every every opportunity she had to just like help others mm-hmm. um and i was just thinking how all the money that abe and amy made off of louise's art and her baskets and you know the traditional native art of the washoe tribe and how her work is in like the fucking smithsonian her tribe doesn't own a single piece of hers oh my god yeah oh no 
depressing. But at least on your end, that's a woman who has been able to push through and like actively, you know, help support others around her. Not only oh, yeah. like, regionally, but really internationally. She's she's got it. She's got she's got some big Yeah, big she's like. she's used her powers for good. Yeah, and so it's it's really rewarding to hear about women like that. Yeah. Um, especially when we have such, you know, kind of crappy stories like mine today. <laughs> but there's a bright side. There's hope. That's why we do this. That's why we'll be back next year with season two, which is so strange to say. And you guys keep <laughs> listening and you guys are amazing. And as always, if you've made it this far, you guys are really <laughs> awesome. I say it every episode. And I mean it every episode. And it's not just Milena's mom listening. It's which not. would still be really cool and I would still do this just for her. <laughs> Hi, Mom. <laughs> Hi, Milena's Bob. You're wonderful. <laughs> I'll be there for Thanksgiving. I'll see you then. But yeah, as always, Milena, if people want to find out more about the wonderful people that we've covered so far, uh, where can they go? We have a website, myfavoritefeminist.com. We have uh, Instagram and Facebook under My Favorite Feminist. You can tweet. Please tweet at us, at Milena Megan. So that's at M-I-L-E-N-A-M-E-G-A-N. Of course, you can listen to us on Stitcher, on TuneIn, on Spotify, and on iTunes. We're also trying to think of different platforms. So if you guys have a specific platform that you'd like to listen on, something that's easier for you, please let us know. We also have an email if you guys like that. Uh, It's info at myfavoritefeminist.com. Come say hi. And honestly, I think... This question in particular, you can tweet, you can email, you can um, write in the iTunes comment section if you want to. I want to know, holiday season is coming up, and obviously there are more holidays in the holiday season that's not Christmas. So I want to hear about your holidays, the ones that you that you celebrate with your families, and I want to hear the traditions that you guys have, because I'm not a big holiday person. This part of the year is really annoying to me, but I think I need some kind of inspiration. So if you guys want to give us a shout out, let me know. And we hope that you guys, I don't know, have a great holiday, whatever one you celebrate. Or don't. That's cool, too. Or don't. You know, I was thinking about staying home and eating Chinese food, but whatever. So, as always, you guys are really amazing. I really look forward to next time. So, until then. Bye. And there are some times when he goes in the bathroom and I know he's pooping and I know that if that door wasn't there, we'd be like eye level with one another. (laughs) I know it bothers him. (laughs)